It's been a good morning already, hadn't it? Man, what a great worship set. Uh, awesome communion meditation. I think uh, if there was one thing I would add to what dads want, uh, you probably understood there was one, one thing missing, and it's a nap. Like if, we could, if we could add family, food, and a nap at the end, man, that's a perfect day. Uh, but Levi and I both have four kids, so our, our day pretty much ends after food. So, um, well, hey, happy Father's Day. To you dads, granddads, uh, men who have stood in the gap, uh, we celebrate you today. I have to laugh because in our culture, as it relates to sermons, there's typically a, a very big difference in a Mother's Day sermon and a Father's Day sermon. And we don't like to talk about it, but this is the way it often goes. We, we sit on Mother's Day, and, and rightfully so, talk about moms, how great you are. And then we come into Father's Day, and we say, dads, you're terrible, right? Like, what, what dad gets jazzed up for a Father's Day sermon? So my, my hope is that today, uh, we're not going to tear you down. My hope is that actually every day, our, our goal in the sermon, in worshiping, is that we come in and we talk about how great Jesus is. So can, can, we, can we agree on this this morning, that that's the starting place for every sermon, how great Christ is. And so it's no exception this morning. Uh, we're in week six, so past the halfway point of our series on the book of 2 Timothy. If you remember last week, as Paul is writing this, his last letter, Paul is in a Roman prison cell. And he's writing this letter to his spiritual son, his protege, his mentee, Timothy. The man he has poured his life into, the man he has sought to help understand the scripture, the man that he has prepared for ministry and now is sending him off to preach the gospel message to the church in Ephesus. And as we came last week to the beginning of chapter 2, Paul gives Timothy three illustrations, uh, three pictures of things in society that he hopes will help him understand who Jesus is, and by extension, the way that a minister, the way that a believer should walk through this life. And so he gives three pictures, three occupations, that he hopes Timothy can recognize a little bit and see the picture that he's trying to paint in that. And so he starts, before he gets into these three pictures, he gives Timothy an invitation. Uh, not an invitation that is really exciting, but an invitation that's worthwhile nonetheless. So Paul opens up in chapter 2, verse 3, by extending this invitation to Timothy. And he says, join with me in suffering. Not an exciting invitation. But he ends, he says, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And what he's pointing us to is that, that this isn't an exciting invitation in the fact of, yes, the believer is going to suffer. But he points to the fact that in Jesus Christ, it's worth it. We've gone through this over and over over the last couple months, that, that this is just a part of who we are. That to claim the name of Jesus Christ is to understand that it's going to bring suffering. It's going to bring hardship, but we're playing the long game. And at the end of all things, the suffering is worth it because it's suffering for the gospel. And so in the face of suffering, Paul gives Timothy these examples that he hopes that Timothy is familiar with in order to give him the tools to keep going. As you're ministering to the people in Ephesus, it's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. There's going to be threats on your life. 
But here's the tools to keep going. So the first picture that Paul gives Timothy is that of a soldier. And the idea behind the soldier is that a soldier has a singular focus on the mission before him. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that as you approach this Christian life, as you minister to the people in Ephesus, as you walk this out, you have a singular focus, not to get involved with all of these things that don't matter, but focus on the things that will last, the things of the gospel. A singular focus on Christ and making him known should be our focus. And so Paul uses the soldier as, as a soldier is hyper aware that there is a battle raging around him. So he doesn't have time to think about what he's going to eat, what he's going to wear. He doesn't have time to focus on all these other things. The focus is on the battle at hand. And so Paul says, Timothy, this is how you're to approach ministry. A singular focus on the fact that there is a spiritual war raging for the souls of every man, woman, and child, and you have the key to get out of it alive. And the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then he moves on to this picture of an athlete. And the point of this was that an athlete competes, but they, they compete according to a certain set of rules or ethics or a code. And the point that Paul is trying to make to Timothy is, Timothy, as you seek to minister, as you seek to live this Christian life, here's the way that you do it. You work, you live, you walk out this life in accordance with the Word of God. Guys, this is so important, so, so relevant for our culture today. That, that we seek to find loopholes around. Well, maybe God didn't mean this. Maybe, maybe God meant something else by this. And, and surely God affirms everything about me. And, and the point of this is for Timothy to relay to the people he's ministering to. We live according to the word of God. That he's the creator, that he's the sustainer, and because of that, he's the one who says, this is the way that life should be lived. And so as believers, we commit to walk according to the word. And the last one he uses is this picture of a farmer. And the point of that is, is to relay to Timothy, this is, this is difficult. To live the Christian life, to walk this out, it, it is difficult. And if you're expecting to see immediate results, look to the farmer who plants, who, who works, who sweats, and doesn't see immediate change, doesn't see an immediate reward. But because of the toil, because of the work, eventually they're going to see a harvest of the crops. And, and the call to Timothy and the call to all of us now is to keep going. The gospel is not an instantaneous thing. This, this, is, this is hard work. To be a believer, to walk this life out, is to, is to not see immediate results. It's to not see success immediately. And this is difficult in an instant gratification culture. It's not going to be that way. But Paul says to Timothy, keep going. Because at the proper time, you're going to see a harvest. May not even be in your lifetime. But the gospel seeds that are planted, God has been faithful to tell us, hey, the, the ones who are going to believe in me, I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to let them slip by. So keep going. So that sets us up for where we're going to go this morning. And what you'll see is that Paul is using these images not only to encourage Timothy, 
but also to point him to the perfect picture of all of them. So as we look at characters in the Bible, what you need to understand is that Jesus, more often than not, is the greater one of those. He's the perfect athlete. He's the perfect soldier. He's the perfect farmer. And so this example that Paul is using is is to, to show him, hey, this is the way that you're to live, but also to point him to the perfect example in Christ. And so this is where Paul is trying to point Timothy And so we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 8 this morning. I'm going to spend a lot of time in this verse, and then we'll work through uh, down to verse 13 this morning. Paul says this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. I just want to start by just breaking this up, because there's three distinct sections in this. So again, Paul says that as you seek to live with a singular focus on the mission ahead, as you seek to live according to God's word, as you seek to live in in hard work, knowing that God is going to be faithful to those who believe in him, that that your gospel work is not going to be in vain. Paul reminds Timothy that the focus of all of this, the, the why, is because of Jesus. Why do you live according to his word? Why do you have a singular focus on sharing the gospel message? Why do you work so hard to share the gospel message? Well, because of Christ. Because of what he's done. Because he's raised from the dead. Because he's the sacrifice for your sins. Because of that, that's why we move forward. So if you're seeking to live this Christian life, to, to at least in, in name, claim to be a believer, and yet have no focus on Christ, here's what I would tell you, you're, you're walking in vain. We, we seek to honor Christ, not, not because it's our own social benefit, not because it's just the tradition that, that mom and dad did, so now by extension that's just who we are, No, we understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done and and what it means for each individual person. And because of that, this is why Paul is adamant that Timothy understand the gospel because when you understand what it means for you, then you can start to understand why my life should be lived in following him. So he says, remember Jesus Christ. Keep this at the forefront of your mind. And he says, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. This is the separator. This is what separates what we believe from every other belief system. This is what moves Christianity from just another religion to the way. The the way to where life is found. This is what moves Christianity from a, a set of good moral teachings to, as Paul says at the beginning of 2 Timothy, The promise of life. This is the separator. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So so here here are some facts. That as you compare Christianity to every other religion, what you're going to find is this. Muhammad, Buddha, Jewish rabbis of old, any other religious figure that you can think of, if they've died, 
they're still dead. The great separator of Christianity is this. We do not serve a historical religious figure who is buried somewhere. We serve a God who borrowed a tomb for three days and is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father. This this is the great separator. And what Paul is going to try to remind Timothy of And we're going to look at some of Paul's other texts that he reminds all the believers that he speaks to is this matters. The resurrection of Jesus, if it's not true, blows everything else of the gospel to bits. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's going to try to to communicate the, the gospel as succinctly as he can. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, And then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Here's why this is significant. In Jewish culture, a testimony wasn't valid unless there were two or more witnesses. And so as Paul lays out, this is the true message of the gospel. This is how people can go from death to life. It's because of Christ, and not just in his death, but in his rising to life. And so if a testimony is only valid with two or more people, Paul says, I'll do you one better. How how, about at least 513 witnesses? You're going to question that all of these people have have said this is what they've seen, and you're going to question the validity of it. He says, no, this this is real. I've seen it. The disciples have seen it. Over 500 brothers and sisters of Christ have seen it. And not just willing to to say, yes, this is what happened, but they're willing to lay down their very lives as to the truth of this. So Paul says, believe in the resurrection. It's true. And he comes later on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians 2, back around to the importance of the resurrection. This, this matters. We've, we've got to be solidified on this because this matters. Listen to what he writes in verse, 15, or excuse me, verse 12 and on. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I understand when we read Paul, he can get a little wordy. In fact, Peter says in one of his letters, there's times I don't understand what in the world Paul's talking about. And so I understand that as we read this, okay, let's, let's break this down. So, so let, me, let me break down what Paul is saying here. He's saying, because evidently in Corinth, there are certain believers or, or certain maybe outsiders that are preaching that Christ has not been raised from the dead. In fact, it's, it's impossible to be raised from the dead. There will be no resurrection of future believers as well. And so Paul is combating against that, and here's what he says. He says, if the resurrection of the dead is impossible, then it has to be impossible for Christ as well. If, if rising from the dead is an impossibility, then that applies to everyone, including Jesus Christ. And then he says, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, gosh, we've been preaching for nothing. If, if the resurrection didn't happen, then everything I've said means absolutely nothing to you. And if that's the case, then we're guilty of, of lying about God. We've broken one of, one of the, the most severe Jewish laws, not to blaspheme about God, not to, to lie about his character of his nature. And if we've been preaching that he raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, when in fact he did not, then we are guilty of this serious sin of lying about who he is and what he's done. And not only that, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then, then here's why it matters to you. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then he hasn't overcome death. If he hasn't overcome death, then his sacrifice to us is worthless. And so you and I are still dead in our sins without hope. And he goes on to say, well, then those who are already dead, it's, it's too late for them. If Jesus wasn't the sacrifice once and for all, then that sacrifice hasn't come. And then those who have died before Christ, well, it's not good. For us, if we've put our faith in one who will ultimately let us down, we have thoroughly wasted our lives. But I love verse 20. And as I read it, I probably read it in the same tone as the rest of them, but I, I think this is where Paul reaches this crescendo. That he lays out all of these things, that if this isn't true, man, we, we've we got to find hope somewhere else. And I'm not even sure if it's available. If Christ has not resurrected from the dead, then what hope is there for you to resurrect from the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead in you, then, then the, life's, the life's biggest obstacle that you face, death, is undefeatable. So the life we live is, is really a life lived in vain. But he comes to verse 20, and I have to believe that, that this is where Paul would raise his voice, and he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the point of all that is this. It guarantees, because of what he's done, that those who believe in him will not be subjected to death once and for all. So he comes to this good news of the gospel that, that Christ did raise from the dead. I know all of these people are, are preaching that he hasn't. But he has. 
And it's good news for you. Because if he's resurrected from the dead and you're in him, then by extension, what's coming for you is your resurrection from the dead. And the point that Paul is trying to make is that Jesus will, will see this work to completion in you. That he's not going to abandon those who have trusted in him at the end of their life. I'm reading a book right now called The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, The Pilgrim's Progress was written uh, in the 1600s, which is not really the time period I enjoy reading. Uh, But this is is the second most published book uh, behind the Bible. Over 200 languages it's been written in. And there's a moment in this book the, this, the plot follows this man named Christian who, who is seeking to follow this path to life. And, and not just life now, but, but eternal life. He's on this journey to a place called the Celestial City. And you start to see the symbolism behind it. And along the journey, Christian meets up with several guys. But at the end, he's with his friend named Hopeful. And there's a moment at the end of the book where they're standing before something called the River of Death. It's obviously symbolizing the end of his life. And so Christian has put his hope in the king. He's recited these different scriptures. He's reminded himself, the king is with me. The king is going to see me through to this. And yet he comes to the river of death and doubt starts to creep in. And he's uncertain if the king's power is able to sustain him as he crosses the river of death. And there's a moment at the very end where Christian loses heart and Hopeful looks at him and he says this. He says, be courageous. Jesus Christ makes you whole. And says, with that, Christian exclaimed, oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through these waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And the point of all this is that I see so many believers who will proclaim their trust in Jesus now, but still live as though they're unsure if Jesus can handle what happens after death. They'll trust Jesus with certain trivial things now, but they live as though they're unsure that the power of Jesus is able to stay with you from life to death. And the point that Paul is trying to make is this for the believers. You can trust Jesus in life and death. His his power, his his resurrection is, is enough. The cross and the empty tomb is enough to sustain you, not just now, but forever. Death is not the biggest issue for the believer anymore. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you and I can approach death not as something to fear, but of hope that this is just the beginning. And Paul centers on the why. It's because of what Christ has done. It's because of him. 
So Paul continues in verse 9. And so he says, this is my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And it's a reminder that, hey, remember. Remember what the prophets have said. This is how Jesus is going to come about. This is how the Messiah is going to come on the scene. He, He reminds Timothy, everything that has been promised about Jesus has come to pass. Meaning that that he is who he says he is. He came about the way that that God said he was going to come about. You can trust him. And it's because of that 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 Timothy is told by Paul, this is my gospel. For which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not changed. Paul has said, for this... For Jesus Christ, living the perfect life, crucified on the cross that that should have been deserved by me and by you, buried in a tomb that should have held me, rising from the dead, which I could not to show, he has power over life and death. It's that gospel that I'll give my very life for. Paul says, it's because of that that I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And here's what Paul recognizes, that even though I'm in chains, God's word is not chained. As Paul has given Timothy this invitation to join him in suffering, the point that he's trying to make here, and, and really who knows more about suffering than Paul? Paul is chained as he's writing this letter to Timothy, He understands what it means to give up his very life for the sake of the gospel. And here's what Paul knows. He says, even though, even though I'm chained, the gospel message is not. It's going to spread. It's going to reach those it's intended to reach. In the darkest of situations, the gospel will go forth you have an opportunity to be a part of the gospel going forth. And so he says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul's saying, why am I holding on to him? Because by worldly wisdom, this seems like it would be the moment, as Paul is is moments away from his death, chained in an underground Roman prison, for him to give up the hope of the gospel. Look at at what it's brought you. And so he says, why am I holding on to him? Well, he understands that that right now it it doesn't seem good. In fact, as believers, as we live in the here and now and and we become blinded by the things of the world, we can become blinded by the here and now. We become numb to the eternal things because we feel fully entrenched in the temporary. This life seems like it's it. But the promise throughout Scripture is that there is going to be a day when believer or unbeliever alike will begin to understand the weight of eternity. There will be a moment in your life 
that you understand the weight of eternity. And, and you, can even, you can either start to, to reconcile this now or, or wait until then, but you're, you're going to see it. So Paul says, with that in full view, the reason I'm holding on in the midst of suffering, the, the, the reason I cannot stop proclaiming the gospel message is so that, that when, when you begin to understand the weight of eternity, it's with joy. It's with gladness. This, this will never end. The life I was created for because Christ has purchased this for me, this, this will never end. So Paul says, I'm going to proclaim the gospel so that, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, that they may have joy in knowing that this life with Christ will never end. But on the flip side of that, as, as much infinite joy as, as I can see in that, I, I see the infinite pain of standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and him saying, depart from me, I never knew you, and understanding the weight of eternity in that moment. That this never ends. That this casting out of his presence never ends. And so Paul says, I, I endure everything. Whatever it takes I'm going to keep going in the gospel message so that those that will believe will hear the gospel message and believe. And that they'll experience the weight of eternal joy that comes from a life purchased by Jesus Christ. So Paul wraps up this section in these next three verses. Here's what he says. Here's a trustworthy saying. I mean, you can, you can go to the bank with this. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we have submitted to Christ, if we've trusted that, that he is the one who has purchased this salvation for us by his work and not by our own, that we've come to the end of ourself and recognize I am a sinner in need of grace and, and here is Christ offering this. When I've come to that, if I've died with him, then the promise is that he's going to finish the work. He's gonna see me through to eternity. If I've died with him, I'll live with him. Verse 12, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he'll also disown us. The, the point is, is that for those who would believe in Christ, who would submit to him, who would choose to honor him with their life, the promise is that they're going to reign with Christ forever. And the promise for those who have pushed aside the gospel, who have rejected Jesus, if we've disowned him, the promise is that he'll disown us. I you do understand that there's no gray area here, right? 
the black and white nature of the gospel is that for those who have submitted their life to Christ, the promise is that Jesus will fulfill his promise to life. And the promise to those who have rejected him is that Christ will fulfill his promise to death. This is the black and white nature of the gospel. And so he ends by saying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. And when Paul says faithless, he doesn't refer here to the struggling or, or weak faith. He's referring to those who have rejected him. He's referring to, to no faith at all. And he says, because, because of who he is, because he is right, because he is true, he's going to fulfill his promise to that. To those who have chosen to be apart from him. He's going to honor that and tell them to depart from him for eternity. For he cannot disown himself. And, and so, for the unbeliever, and, and yeah, this is, this is something that should drive fear in us, but, but it's not, that's not the point of this, to use scare tactics. But, but I want you to understand what's at stake. Paul is reminding Timothy that, that Jesus will do what he said he's going to do. So if you think, if you think at the end of your life that, that hopefully you've done enough good moral things and maybe because of that Jesus is going to make an exception for you, the point that Paul is making is he can't. He, he, he can't make an exception because it's not who he is. He's true to who he says he is. So, so there's, there's the bad news. But the good news is this. For, for the, the person who has trusted in him and said, I, I believe that the cross, the resurrection took my place, that his spilled blood that should have been mine covers me and that his rising from the dead means I'm going to rise at the end as he calls me. For those people he will see it to completion. This is the good news of the gospel. And the question is this, is where, where do you fall? Where do you fall in this? Totally, completely dependent on Christ or, or still striving to do it yourself or rejecting him totally? Paul has pulled no punches in what's at stake. And so just a moment, we're going to, we're going to sing a song of praise, and, and I hope you understand this, that this is not a performance. It's a declaration of praise to who he is because we believe, we can trust that when Christ says, cling to me and I will save you from death, he means it. We can trust him in that. If the Holy Spirit is somehow use this message to draw you to him, then, then the call is to come to him. Believe in Jesus Christ. Come to the end of yourself and realize that repentance is turning from our sin and recognizing there is nothing in me that is worthy of salvation. I am fully dependent on Christ and living according to the way he has called us to live.
the response for you is to believe, to confess that Jesus is Lord, to walk in obedience to baptism through him, to, to be raised to life with him. For the gift of the Holy Spirit that begins this work of making you new. Why? Why should you run to Christ? Well, it's because eternity is real and it's awaiting. For some, that will be a day of infinite joy that is just the beginning. And for those who have chosen to reject, God is, is faithful and true to what he said. And that will be the beginning of infinite sorrow because of our own sin. Cling to the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that we'll walk this life out together as we seek him. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, as, as you've inspired the writing of, of these letters, Father, you, you've made it abundantly clear. Father, that because of my sin, I've separated myself from you. God, through your Holy Spirit, will you impress on us the weight of eternity? And Father, remind us that, that Christ had to come because of my sin, because of my choosing. Father, you have shown your grace and your mercy for us and that you've sent your son to die in the place of those who would trust in him. To be a promise of the resurrected life to come by your resurrection to show that you have the power over life and death. And, and Father, by that, you've shown us you are worthy to be trusted. So Father, may we put our hope and our trust in you. Lord, there is no other name like yours. Father, forgive me when I've fallen short of your glory. Forgive me when I've chosen to walk my own way, to, to try to manufacture things my own way. Father, I thank you that you've forgiven a sinner like me, and I pray that your grace would continue. I pray that for all of us. Father, it's in your holy and precious name that we pray these things.